0: invite you to join me in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 6, as the party animals leave, at least that's what it looks like, go Kyler, bye Kyler, let's just get right into it, Exodus chapter 6, we'll begin reading in verse number 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture that exalts you, that puts you front and center in our minds. I pray that as a result of this passage of Scripture, we would recognize that you should be front and center of our minds in everything that we do. Lord, thank you for saving. Thank you for doing so of your own free will, of your own power, and determination. Father, I pray that we would surrender to your will, to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Our big idea this morning, as found throughout this passage, is that God saves his people by his own determination and power. I know that's lengthy. But it's all necessary. God saves his people by his own determination and power. Verses 2 through 5, we see God proclaiming his sovereignty uh, throughout time. Moses has just complained at the end of chapter 5, and God is answering Moses' complaint with, with what? With a, no, Moses, buck up, just take care of it. No, He answers with more of himself. By the way, that's exactly what we need too. When all we can see is our problems, we don't actually need that problem resolved. We need a bigger view of God. When our pains and our struggles are occupying our attention, though we desire release... What we really need is to see more of God. The moaning that Moses had last week that we looked at, uh, verse, chapter five, verses 22 and 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, "'O oh Lord, why have you done this evil to this people?' Remember, uh, Moses and Aaron have approached Pharaoh, said, the, the Lord says, let my people go, And Pharaoh, instead of letting them go, has made work that much harder. Has taken his slaves and said, continue to make bricks, but I'm not giving you any more straw. And Moses turns back to the Lord, why have you done this evil? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people and have not delivered your people at all. You have not delivered your people at all. Moses is very... Very blunt with God. By the way, we can be blunt with God in our prayers. We can tell him exactly how we're feeling. And God responds in chapter 6, verse 1, but the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out. With a strong hand he will drive them out of the land. And in continuing, uh, as the passage goes on, Moses is going to be reminded of the past, and that's what we see in verses 2-4. through God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. By the way, if if you're following along, you see that uh, where it says the word Lord, it's all caps. Remember, that's the formal name of God. He's saying, I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah, the one who has no beginning and has no end. Three times in today's passage, God declares, I am Jehovah. Three times. And God is stating his name, not so Moses will know. Moses knows. He's stating his name as a punctuation, as a little emphasis. As a seal of what he's saying. That yes, what I'm saying is absolutely true. True. Verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. God is saying, remember who I am. I'm the one who spoke to you through the burning bush. I'm the one who chose Abraham, and Abraham believed me. So he packed up and he moved from his home and, and moved to a place that he didn't know where he's going he just became a sojourner a nomad god continues he says i'm the one who promised isaac to abraham and sarah remember that abraham and sarah were old childless And God had told Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to make a heritage of you. You're going to have so many descendants, you're not going to be able to count them. But yet he had none. God says, remember, I'm the God who promised Isaac and gave him Isaac. And then when Isaac was of age, what did God command of Abraham? Go sacrifice your son." But Abraham believed God so much that God was actually going to do what he said in giving him a heritage of an innumerable number of people that even though Isaac had not had any children yet, that he knew that God was going to keep his promise. So he went through with it, didn't he? Even bringing the knife up to Isaac's neck to slaughter him before the angel of the Lord said, Stop! And gave him a substitute. God says, I am the one who chose Jacob as the child of blessing. Remember, Jacob and Esau were twins. And Esau was born first. But God says, Jacob is my chosen one. By man's reckoning, Esau should have been the child of blessing. But God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. And he, <laughs> he used the sinful personalities of the people involved to make it happen, didn't he? Getting Jacob to trick his dad into giving him the blessing that he should have been giving him anyway. Right? God says, I appeared to your forefathers as El Shaddai. That's what he's saying here um, in verse 3. He says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as, quote, God Almighty. That's El Shaddai. And immediately after he says this, verse 3 stops making sense. Look at it. Read with me. He says, "But by my name Jehovah I did not make myself known to them." Now, if you don't know Genesis, then this verse makes sense. But if you know Genesis, this verse does not make sense because God did reveal himself as Jehovah. Now, if we have a low view of scripture, we just assume this is this is an error one of probably many that are there. Don't clip this out of context. I know this is being recorded. If you have a low view of Scripture, you could look at this verse and assume, well, it's just an error. We're just going to move on. However, we hold a high view of Scripture. We believe that scripture means what it says when it says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for instruction, correction, etc. We believe that there is not a single stroke or a single dot of the original scripture that God has given that he wants us to know that will ever die. Okay, uh, In the, 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 old, the old King James, it was every jot and tittle. We hold a high view of scripture, that all of God's word was recorded by the original authors exactly word for word as he wanted them to record it, right? Okay, I'm not hearing any response, but you know that that's true, right? God recorded without error through the original authors everything that he wanted to be recorded. There it is, thank you. Further, we hold that God has preserved his word for us through countless copies and translations and though the inspired original autographs have been lost, we do believe that God has preserved for us his word, that we can trust that we have what God wants us to know. So with that as our foundation, when we look at verse 3 where he says, by my name Jehovah, I didn't reveal myself to to the founding fathers, as it were, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. If we go to the book of Genesis, God's formal name Jehovah is found 162 times. That's a lot more than none, right? Right? 162 times, 117 of those times are found in the lifetime of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Many of them in direct conversation with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So did God reveal himself as Jehovah to them? Yes, absolutely he did. He did. So when we have an apparent contradiction in Scripture, there are no contradictions in Scripture, by the way. There can be apparent contradictions in Scripture as we have right here. then we take the weight of the clear passages to understand that which is unclear the weight of the clear passages the abounding weight of the clear passages found all throughout genesis is that god has revealed himself as jehovah from the very beginning okay that's the clarity the unclear is the second part of verse 3 where the words in our translation says but As my name, Jehovah, I did not make myself known to them. Hebrew scholars, of which I am certainly not one of them. Hebrew scholars make a strong case for what's going on here. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but without vowels or punctuation. Can you imagine? Take the English language. Take any old paragraph. Remove all the vowels and the punctuation. How easy is that going to be to read? Any teacher want to teach people how to read that? Yikes. A number of commentaries that I looked at all said the same thing about this verse that this phrase is not supposed to be a statement but a rhetorical question. By my name Jehovah did I not make myself known to them? Now if that's a rhetorical question then that's perfect harmony with the abundance of the I am Jehovah's that we find in the book of Genesis. Does it not? Now, why have our English translations? In fact, I looked at um, all of the common English translations that you and I might use. I didn't find a single one that worded it better. Why haven't they worded it better? I don't know. But I'll tell you this. We're going to trust the scripture and that which is clear over that which is not clear. By my name, the Lord, did I not make myself known to them? Yes, he has, and that's, Pretty much the point that he's making in this passage that I have made myself known to them for these generations, and I'm revealing myself to you as him again now. So, after rehearsing the past about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God then reminds Moses of the present, what he's doing right now. Verse 5 Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Now we talked about this in earlier passages when God says, I remember, it doesn't mean that he ever forgot, right? When he says, I remember my covenant with them, he's saying, I know what I have promised and I am now going to act on it. I'm going to do what I've said that I was going to do. So in verses two through five, we have God speaking of his sovereignty. He does it in very... Uh, in a very compact, condensed form. In mentioning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we could spend hours upon hours talking about each time God made his will known to them and then did it, right? That's the encouragement that, that God has given to Moses. I have acted sovereignly in the past, and you know this. Now in verses six through nine, God gives gives us his promise of salvation. It's the promise of God's salvation. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's number one. Number two, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Number four, I will take you to be my people. Number five, I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Number six, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give, you, to, give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And number seven, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So in this communication that God is telling Moses to give to the people of Israel, he starts and ends it with, I am Jehovah. And then he gives seven I wills. Seven. Number of completion, right? First one. Actually, before the first one, he says, I am the Lord. He ends it with, I am the Lord. These are the the bookends of the message. Instead of having quotation marks, this is how God is is delineating where his message starts and stops. I am Jehovah. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I think that was 7. And he says, "I am Jehovah." That's his message to the people of Israel. The first two, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery. The first two I wills are both about God's sovereign choice to free the Israelites from slavery. These first two are parallel to the last two. This is a chiastic structure, by the way. I've talked about this before, but not very often. And some of you are going to just gloss over, as I say, chiastic. But when the, the Greek letter chi is an X, and so you start here and you go up to the middle and you come down and that middle point is the highest argument that's being made. And in these seven points, you have the first and the last that are parallel to each other and so forth and so on, going back up to the main point, which we'll get to in just a moment. But these first two are actually linked together where uh, God is giving them freedom, right? He says, I'm going to remove you from slavery. Do you see that? It's in verse six. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptian and deliver you from slavery. No longer will they be putting their labor At the requirements or the benefits of their captors, but they will be free to worship the Lord. These first two are parallel to the last two. Look at the last two. Verse 8 I will bring you into the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. The last two are about the receipt of land. So the first two are about getting out of slavery, and the last two are about getting into freedom. You know, in our, own, in our own country, as the Civil War came to a close, as President Lincoln gave the Emancipation Proclamation, declared all slaves set free, a lot of the slaves didn't have anywhere to go, did they? And if you don't have anywhere to go, you're not exactly free, are you? But God's taking care of that for his people here, isn't he? He's setting them free from Egypt and from Pharaoh and is giving them a place to go, a land that he's going to give them. So The first two and last two are about slavery and the replacement of that slavery, their freedom. The third and the fifth are also parallel to each other. The third is, I will redeem you. And the fifth is, I will be your God. They're related because only God can redeem When something is redeemed, it is taken in an incomplete or broken state and then transformed into something better, something valuable. In the last house we owned, I remodeled a bathroom on a budget, and what a low budget it was. We found an old, I think it was a TV stand, but it, it was old and it was ugly, but it was solid wood. It wasn't that press sawdust stuff. And so we took parts of it off that we didn't like and we stripped the finish off of it and refinished it and put it in this bathroom with a nice little bowl sink on top and all of a sudden we had more storage in our bathroom, we had a nicer counter area. It was a way that we were able to redeem that worthless piece of furniture, taking it and refashioning it, making it into something new. God promises in no uncertain terms with no conditions applied. God promises that he will redeem his people. Not because of any inherent worth of the people of Israel. They were sinners like everyone else. The nation of Israel was a sinful people like every other nation. God chose them because he chose them. Isn't that a great reason? My children hate it when they ask me why we're doing something and I say, just because. Why did God choose Israel? Because he chose Israel. God's choice of Israel is actually the main point. The third point, the third I will, is I will redeem you. The fifth is I will be your God. And that pinnacle, that number four, is I will make you to be my people. That is the main point of his message to Israel. I will take you to be my people. The main point is not the release from slavery. Although that's pretty awesome, right? The main point is not the land oh, that's pretty good too. They need a place to go, a place to be their own, a place that they can defend. The main point is not even that God would redeem them. The main point of God's message to Israel is I have chosen you to be my people. Why did God choose them? It's not because Israel chose God They didn't. It's because God chose them. They didn't choose him. They couldn't choose him. And without God's influence, they wouldn't choose him. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. God makes it very clear through his scripture, his choice of Israel Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 through 8 for you are a people holy to the Lord your God the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you did you notice that that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. If God did not choose Israel and then make their freedom happen, they would not be rescued. The same is true for you and me. Our salvation is based 100% on God making the sacrifice for you. Your salvation is based 100% on God drawing you to himself, and then you respond in faith. That is the order. Some of you struggle with the sovereignty of God over your salvation. I know this. From conversations over the years... I've been preaching to you for six and a half years now and every time the sovereignty of God in salvation has even remotely mentioned it, I highlight it. I point it out. And still some of us struggle. That's okay. That's okay. I'm going to keep preaching it. I'm not going to take the time to lay it all out today. Maybe as a part of our next topical series later this year. I don't know. Uh, but, if you struggle to understand the biblical teaching, not my teaching, not not some author denomination, if you struggle to harmonize harmonize what the Bible clearly says, take note. Take note. Go to John chapter six. John chapter six, verse twenty two, write this down. John chapter six, verse twenty two, study it from verse twenty two around to around verse fifty. This is all. One event, this is not a series of things that's happening that are, are different topics, different locations that could be taken out of context. Study, meditate, ask for God to help you. And here are the main verses from that chapter. John chapter six, verse 37, Jesus is speaking. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That is such a loaded verse, a lovely, wonderful, loaded verse, isn't it? Because who is it that God gives to the Son as a gift that Jesus doesn't receive? Not one is lost, right? A few verses later, verse 44, the Pharisees have been arguing with Jesus. They do not like what he's teaching. And Jesus flat out says to them, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. Who can come to the Father? No one, unless the Father draws him, and I will raise him up on the day. Jesus is looking at people who are arguing with him, who are antagonistic to the gospel, and he's saying, the reason you don't believe is because God hasn't called you. And then just another three verses later, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Now, if we take that verse by itself, it sounds like anyone can believe. Is it true that anyone can believe? I'll give you the answer. Is God going to turn away anyone who believes? No. The question is not, is it an open invitation to anyone? The question is, who will believe? The fact is, if God doesn't help us understand, we won't believe. don't let the doctrine of god's sovereignty be a confusing issue the the preponderance the the weight of scripture points to god's sovereignty in choosing people to be saved and our response often is well why doesn't he choose everyone What we know about scripture, what we know about God through scripture is that God does everything for his glory, right? So it must bring, now I don't understand this. I'm not gonna pretend to understand this. It must bring more glory to God to choose some and let others follow the natural path of their unbelief than for God to choose everyone. Now how should that make us respond? Humility right? God, why did you help me understand? Who am I? Back to our regularly scheduled sermon. Verse 9. How does Israel respond? God has given seven very strong, very hope-filled promises of I will. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And he brackets it with his name, sealing it, saying, I am absolutely going by my power to do this. Verses 6 through 8, God declares, I will. And verse 9, the Israelites say, We won't. Moses spoke, this is verse 9, but Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. Why? Scripture tells us because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. God has chosen his people. We know how the story goes, don't we? They're going to leave. God says, I will do all these things, and he's going to do it. But at this point, the people don't believe. He lets them. He lets them choose to not believe, at least for now. Maybe you're here today and you know the Lord, you know his promises, but your circumstances of life are horrible and they're overwhelming. Maybe you can relate to the Israelites in this position. They're broken. They've been enslaved. For everyone who's alive at this point in the nation of Israel, they've been enslaved all of their lives. And it just got worse as God has told them he's going to set them free. It's actually gotten worse. Yeah, they're broken. If that describes you today, keep feeding yourselves the truth of God's word. Cling tightly to the promises of God. He is faithful. In this moment, the people of Israel are too hurt, too broken, to really believe that their situation could ever get even better, much less set them free. But God is going to do it. In fact, in a relatively short amount of time, God is going to have them out of Egypt. He himself will provide for every need that, to get them out of, his, out of Egypt, and he himself is going to provide for every need that they have while they're out in the wilderness. They just don't see it yet. If you're struggling to see the promises of God, keep trusting, keep feeding yourself the word of God, because he will be faithful to you. In our passage, God has proclaimed his sovereignty. He has promised salvation. And our passage concludes with God persuading his servants. Israel is not convinced, but God is going to convince Moses and Aaron. So in verses 10 and 11, God tells Moses to approach Pharaoh again. Verse 12, Moses says to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Do you hear the despair in Moses' response? He's, he's discouraged. Don't let that, that phrase, uncircumcised lips, throw you. No, they did not cut people's lips. This is a metaphor. This is a metaphor for his complaint earlier to God. Uh, he said, I can't go and be the leader that you called me to be because I can't speak. Remember that from chapters 3 and 4? And perhaps he was tongue-tied. Some believe that he did have a speech impediment, and that's what he he means by this metaphor of an uncircumcised lips. Regardless, Moses is falling back to his earlier excuse. But verse 13 is where that changes. Verse 13 is where God sort of seals Moses and Aaron. And after this, Moses approaches Pharaoh with confidence that was lacking before verse 13, but the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Whatever the content of this charge is, this command to Aaron and Moses, we don't know. We don't have the words. But whatever God tells them, it convinces them, it's, it effectively gets them to lead Israel. Let me ask you, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Most of you in here can say yes, yes and amen. If you're trusting Jesus for your salvation, then you have been chosen to be God's very own people, just as God chose the people of Israel. I will take you to be my people. The truth that God has made you his own people, his own child, should bolster your prayer life. In fact, that's the New Testament word, isn't it? It's child. He's taking you to be his own child with all the rights available to a firstborn son even. The truth that God has made you his child should bolster your prayer life. It should cause humility and it should bolster your prayer life. Here's John fifteen sixteen. Jesus is... About to be crucified, he's talking to his disciples. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so. And here's the key so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. He's chosen you. That should supercharge your prayer life because he wants to answer your prayers. The whole point of today's passage is that God saves his people by his own determination and power. And what's fascinating, those very people in verse 9 who did not believe because of their broken spirit, those very people God is going to rescue even though they don't believe right now. You might be in that boat. You might be an unbeliever. I've been speaking to believers, but you might not be a believer, at least not yet. If God is working in your heart, that is God drawing you to himself. So submit to him in faith. The Bible simply commands this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't ask us to consider, doesn't ask us to The Bible does not ask me as a pastor to go to people and plead and draw on the heart strings and play just as I am 17 times in a row. The Bible simply just lays it out as a command. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive his salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work of salvation that you do that just as you called the people of Israel to be your people, you call people today to be your children. Father, those of us who have responded in faith, who are your children, help us to act like your children, to live lives that are consistent with the holiness that you require. Thank you that when we fail to be holy, that you bring us back every time that we ask. You, you never abandon us. You always forgive. Lord, I pray that you would use the truth of your gospel in our hearts and lives today, that it would motivate us to live for you, it would motivate us to share the gospel, that it would motivate us to pray. Father, if there's a soul here today that needs to call out to you today, I pray that they would. Help them. Help them to obey. So Lord, we ask that you would be honored in our hearts and minds through our deeds throughout the day and the rest of this week. In fact, until your son returns, help us be found faithful, serving you, living for you. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.